Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the first Ruler podcast of 2018. I'm Ian Parkinson. Later on, I'll be talking to two former pros from one of the previous golden ages of British cycling. Paul Watson and Tim Harris are still actively involved in the sport and looking to find new ways of helping promising young riders. But we start with a man universally recognised as one of the nicest in pro cycling, Juan Antonio Fletcher. Although often riding as a domestique, his 13-year career included a Tour de France stage win, victory at Omlop het Neusblad and eight top ten places at Paris-Roubaix. He retired in 2013 and is best known now for his cycling commentary and reporting on Eurosport, a career option that never occurred to him when he was racing. Not at all. When that's very funny because when you, before you stop cycling your career, you have many ideas. You think that you'll do different things, and then when you stop, there are a lot of new perspectives and new feelings and new thoughts uh, about your new life that you, you never thought before. So obviously, television was not. I never thought about doing what I've been doing in the last years. But I got very lucky. Eurosport contacted me and, and, and we started doing a few, a few things and, and we kept doing things and, and we did a, bit, a few more other things. Had you thought about maybe going into management or being a DS or anything like that? That was my initial thought. That was my, when I was a rider, I was always thinking, like, oh, when I stop cycling, I build my own team and that's going to be my goal. So my mission, how I will see myself in the future when I was a rider was actually that like oh why not being at the S or being a team manager or trying to build your own team and, <laughs> and then you you stop cycling and it's like hold on a minute give me a break you know you start seeing cycling from a completely different angle different perspective and you actually enjoy like being being from that other perspective and, and watching cycling and enjoying it from, from, from that side. But you're still at the races, aren't you? You're still sort of involved, or most of the time you're at the races and you're still involved in, in the sport pretty hands-on. Does that feel weird? Yeah, unfortunately I am. And I say unfortunately because I, will never plan, I, I never planned before and, and I, it's not the way I want to go. Like going, again, for so many days away and, and being on the road basically because when you're on the Grand Tours, you're on the road, you have to drive the car here and there, so everything's a bit of a hassle, but apart from that, because you got the energy and you do it and you got the drive of, of, of the Grand Tours, there's so much exciting excitement, it's also that you're again 
away from your life, from your friends and your family and your, your routine, basically. Some would say, well, is that your comfort zone? So it's always good to go away from that. But obviously, it is something that I would like to change in the future. I would like to still do what I'm doing, but on a different way, not having to be that much away. But I think your question, sorry, Ian, was more about like, how do I see it being on the races, at the races, not being a rider? Well, that's another story. And it's a completely... It's a surprise when you're not a rider anymore because you're there and you're actually really enjoying watching the races. Like, you're really enjoying riders winning and, and or being on the breakaway and attacking. And, and that's something that when you're a cyclist, you're super competitive and they are your rivals. So the guys who are going on the attack or winning, they're your rivals. So you're a bit, like, jealous on that. Or if you're happy about the achieving results... I say you're never that happy as you are now as, uh, uh, as watching as a fan or, or doing whatever for, for cycling. Do you think uh, that uh, cyclists, you know, young cyclists, uh, you know, cyclists who are still riding, do you think they give enough thought to what's going to happen when they, when they retire? Well, everyone, everyone's got their own way of, of doing things or during their career and after their career. I'd say... I did it in one way and I didn't really think much about what I was going to do after the career. And the reason why I, I, I decided or choose that perspective is because like, I was like, I'm, on, I'm on living the dream. You know? you, you, when you're a cyclist, when any young kid who turned pro makes not much, doesn't make much sense thinking or planning when you're not going to be longer be a cyclist I think it's time when you're a cyclist just to enjoy that just to just to plan your cycling career not when you you stop because you never know you never know how your career is going to be how long and uh, it's a very good moment just to enjoy it and, and focus on that once you retire once you stop for whatever reason then you have enough time to, to rethink about it because as I said before when you're a cyclist, you have a, a vision of how you're going to be in the future. But you're still a cyclist, right? So that vision might not be the real one. Once you're not longer a cyclist, that starts like, shaping the new, new identity of, 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 of the person who, has, who was a cyclist and then is a, a normal guy. The reality. In the reality, exactly. Then, yeah. One favorite memory from your career, what would, what would that be? I'd say that riding... Being in the podium of Roubaix, Paris Roubaix, that's been the nicest. That's what I've always dreamed. And, uh, and as well, winning the stage in the Tour de France, you're on the podium of the Tour de France, you're really enjoying it. And that's something, doesn't matter if you're winning, especially with Roubaix, because even if you're third, you're still there. So you're still in the velodrome, celebrating with the winner. And um, it's kind of a mystic place in cycling and uh, just being there, enjoying from that point of view. You really take your time and you really pace yourself down. So you've been from competing, being at 150%, 200%, to really pacing yourself down to that level where you're actually really enjoying that moment. And that's very magical. And do you have any idea what the sort of future holds beyond your commentary? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing my four years degree, full degree on marketing and, and market research. And so I'm planning my life on, 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 on different ways, obviously, not just on, 
on TV expertise or, or TV commentary, but also on, on getting involved with the cycling industry and and obviously my my goal will be also to get involved with the industry and and why not keep doing some TV as well, but a little bit of everything, and uh, because it's good fun. I think that the more the more you spread out your activities and especially when when someone has been so focused on just one thing, which was cycling, I kind of feel like, and I kind of enjoy spreading it out a bit, like not just focus on, on one thing, just being more like, okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and whatever comes. Thirty years ago, long before Team Sky and the GB Metal Factory, British bike racing was riding a surge of popular interest. Televised town centre crits pulled in huge crowds and the slightly ramshackle ANC Halfords team took on the Tour de France. Paul Watson was one of the leading riders of the era and he joined me at the Ruler Classic along with fellow 80s pro Tim Harris, who now runs a home-from-home home for visiting cyclists at his house in Belgium. Uh, started maybe 12, 13 years ago, and uh, I bought this big house, um, basically to live in. At the time, I knew I was pretty good friends with, with uh, Rod Ellingworth, and he asked if there was uh, a place for him to bring the new-founded uh, British Cycling Academy over to Belgium to do some Kermis races with the new, the new riders. So uh, he basically brought some um, lads, one of which was Cavendish, the other one Mark, Matt Bramier. And uh, really, to be honest, word got out and about. I've never ever made any publicity or done anything and, um, to do with publicising it. And just one thing led to another and I've ended up having, over the years, hundreds of riders come and stay. And not just British riders as well? No, 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 it's completely well. international. Canada... Canadians, New Zealanders, South Africans, basically from lots and lots of places. And this is all just word of mouth? Completely 100% word of mouth. It's because in Belgium there's so many races and whoever you are in the cycling world, you somehow gravitate towards Belgium if you're a young rider because you know you can race so often. And just, yeah, literally word of mouth, people have ended up coming to, to stay over the years. Now, Paul, um, people who were following cycling a few years ago will certainly remember you. Um, remind us of your sort of career highlights, as it were. Cross champ, and then um, then the road for, for rally. Got up there in the milk race a few times, got, I think about a third and a fourth. King of the Mountains twice. And then I'd signed for Itachi, got up there in uh, Flesh Alone, and... Um, that was it, really, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you were also um, part of ANC Halfords as well, and it was a sort of legendary team of the late 80s, was it? Yeah, yeah, 87, 88. 86, 87. Yeah, 86, 87. And, uh, of course, I mean, that is kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that was a massive part in, in British cycling, really, to be part of that. I mean, Tim and, Tim and myself were on, on that team, and uh, it was the start of... Um, well, we were 25 years before Team Sky, really. So, uh, but we did it on a shoestring, and um, the owner of the team ran off with the money, and uh, it all ended in tears. Yeah, but <laughs> although it ended in tears at the end, we had an awful lot of um, good races and a lot of people and a lot of to be thankful for for the team because there are like Paul, like Malcolm Elliott, Adrian Timmis, myself, Joe McCoughlin, all those riders went on to 
win or go to ride for big teams when they, if it hadn't been for ANC in the first place we wouldn't never have had the opportunity to be in those in on, in the big playing field really when you look back at ANC Halfords and some of the other teams that were around at the time and the sort of and actually that was almost a sort of quite a good period for British cycling wasn't it there was a bit of money in the sport there were well we had the Kellogg's the Kellogg's TV races yeah, so the, that was um, yeah. uh, city center crits that were I mean, televised I, I think generally people from the new generation of cyclists don't realise how big the sport was in the late 80s. I mean, there were eight professional teams. We had more pros than France. Yeah. We literally, at ANC, we had a private plane to fly to races in. I mean, lit- literally, we... I mean, it's nearly unbelievable to think about it. I remember racing, we did a race in Norwich, we'd fly in a private plane to Newcastle for the next race. So literally all summer long, we'd fly in private planes. It's nearly... Unbelievable to think about now, but and, and also the, the crowds were like 60, 70,000, 10 yeah. deep. You know, huge, huge town centre uh, crowds. What happened? The recession. Well, now also though, I think uh, the organisers went from the, the the format, which was town centre criteriums, and he tried to do the Kellogg's tour, which he tried to make a, a national tour. And when he did that, it meant that small teams, one or two or three riders that could show in the televised crit series, couldn't then race in the national tours in the, or the national tour. And so then sponsors started pulling out. I think he, if he had carried on with that format, it, it was it was it was really fitted the British. Psyche was only an hour long, stopped for an interval for TV ads. You know, it, it really worked. I think it's a fairly similar system to how the cyclocross is in Belgium. You have an hour television, you've got fixed cameras. Because it's so exciting like the cyclocross is, it holds the attention of the, of the public for one hour, plus the names like, like Malcolm Elliott, like Shane Sutton, they were household names at the time, and uh, like the cyclocross riders are. Like Paul said, it's probably when they changed to go to a national tour and less emphasis on the hour criteriums um, that the sponsorships sort of faded because it really it went it didn't gradually go down. It went from like 89 when I think it was six or eight teams to to one in a year. It was really really and also 89 was the year of the recession and the house prices collapsed. So all that a bit to do with it really. Did either of you go over to uh, Belgium and, and, and race over there sort of on your own? Because there was a tradition certainly before sort of the late 80s wasn't there of British riders going over there and trying to make their own way in the, on the continent. Yeah I actually went to France so I, I went to uh, Lille in northern France and I raced sort of across actually it was kind of a little bit of a, an easier sort of in because the, as it turned out I was the only cyclocross rider so I had the team car and all the all the facilities that the road team had. They just gave it to me for the winter. So I, I was quite yeah. did quite well actually. And I, I went to uh, Holland, on, well on the Dutch Bel- Dutch Belgian border. So I, st- I raced for an amateur, as an amateur for five years in, in Holland and Belgium before I turned pro. When you look at the sort of facilities that are on offer to young British riders now, yeah, what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I, I raced in 2016 with the guys, and I was living with the uh, Dave Rayner. You know, I was racing, racing elites, and uh, there's a, there's a, there is, and I speak to Tim about it quite a lot. There's a different mindset. It may be across on, along all things, but young riders now are buried. They're headed buried in a in a mobile phone, and they're so concerned with their numbers, with their data, with their performance. They're not. It's 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 a diff. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's it's really hard to put you to, to to nail it down. But there's something really different. You'd have a start line, 
and a finish line. And what mattered to us really was where you came in the race. And now it seems to what matters is what your power performance is or your wattage or your aerodynamic ability. And I always say, it's all right, big aerodynamic, but if you're sat on somebody, you don't need to be that have an aerodynamic helmet or shirt because you're sat on. It was more kind of shoot from the hip because uh, you, you weren't looking at, you had no feedback. You know, if, you, if, a, if a break was going, you had to go with it. And, and, but now they would be looking at their numbers, holding back, making a calculated uh, uh, you know, assessment on what readings they're getting. And it's, it's different, you know. For me, they can, the first thing I'd do, I'd ban those uh, power meters in the races because it makes for boring rides. Exactly what Paul says, riders don't go beyond what they think they can do. And the one thing that no power meter or any of these things can say is how much you can suffer on a bike. And nobody can determine that. Are the young Belgian riders the same? As, I mean, is it the, the same sort of technology? It's, and the same, same it's an international yeah. thing. Everybody's the same. All the countries are the same. Most of the riders are the same. Everybody, because obviously the world is so interconnected these days it's not like okay before when you went to belgium it felt like you was abroad now you've got the internet you've got everybody speaks english you've got english television for example a belgian person has as many influences as from britain as from vice versa so a lot of the new things that come in cycling are just as likely come to come from america and be taken on by a belgium so it's much more uh, before if you were French, you were French. If you were Spanish, you were Spanish. If you were Belgium, you were Belgium. But now it's a lot more sort of merging into one, really. You've mentioned the Dave Rayner Fund, and you're both actually involved in that. Uh, tell us what the latest stage of that is. Well, actually, I, I was trying to, this year, uh, put a team together for next year. So the, the, the riders would race on a Dave Rayner team, and, and it's kind of accepted that that, that, that would be a, the next step forward. Um, there was no no shortage of industry backing for it. Everyone I spoke to was 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 keen, but it's it's getting the money that to, to fund it for the period, and that's that's that. I was running out of time for next year, so I've got all of the next sort of six or seven months to try and look for that. And if I could find it, I think that would be the next step. And what sort of races would uh, would that be taking part in? Well, I think it'd be under 23 setup, you know, which would be uh, what they're doing now funding the riders under 23 but if they could ride under the same banner I think that would be a, a step forward you know uh, but it's a, it'll be a tough a tough thing but if anyone does listen to this and thinks that you know they'd like to get involved with that in some way if they're a big CEO you know it would be a great thing because it's uh, it'd be unlike sponsoring a, a a normal sort of commercial team it's it's a it's a different aspect and there'll be a load of uh, goodwill backwash from I mean, just this. to say who Dave Rayner was for the people that don't know Dave Rayner uh, was a professional cyclist. Uh, I was his teammate in, uh, in, in Rally Banana. He was a top rider. He ended up going to ride for a Dutch team called uh, Buckler, uh, which was one of the best teams in the world at the time, but unfortunately he got killed. After that, there, there, there was a fund set up, and the fund was basically set up to uh, get money to send young riders abroad. So over the last few years, a lot of riders have received uh, money to uh, go and live abroad. Um, so it's a very worthy uh, cause um, in the cycling world, really. And from that, you know, you've got we've got riders in the Tour de France now that have, that have gone through the Dave Rayner programme, and that had they not had that, they may not have been riding the Tour de France today. Adam Yates, Dan McClay, James Shaw, they're all lads that have uh, gone, yeah, gone through. How many of them have come to Belgium with you? A lot of them come to Belgium, yeah. Yeah, because it is a sort of a stepping stone. Uh, you, you're a good young rider, you're a junior. And you have to decide where to go, and you either go on to the BC Academy route, 
But the trouble is a lot of the riders who are road riders don't want to do that because although they have a very good road program, they also have to ride the track, which some riders feel compromises them on the road. So their only op op alternative then is to go themselves really to, to Europe. And some go to Italy, some go to Spain, some go to France and some, some come, come to Belgium. Tim Harris and Paul Watson. And that's it from this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Do stick with us through 2018. It's looking like another interesting year on the roads. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 